I want you to think about that. You can be seated. I want you to think about this new Jerusalem and, and this beautiful picture that I found. This, this picture is not of heaven. This picture is an actual picture that was, uh, and if you get to look them up sometimes, it's really cool. But the, years ago, the Hubble Space Telescope, they shot out in the outer space and all of that takes pictures all the time. And, and it's amazing some of the things that, they, that, that this camera or this telescope captures, you know. And you've got to be careful you need to make sure, of course, we live in a day of fact-checking. And, and if I was you, I would fact-check the fact-check people too, okay? But we live in this day where Photoshop could actually make me look better. And uh, if we have that, then, then we're doing good, right? But there's some pictures that you look at and people say it's this and heaven is out there. The Bible says that eye hasn't seen and ear has not heard of the things that God has prepared. And so we can't speculate on those things. But what a wonderful beauty that, that has to be there. My friends, the Davisons, used to sing a song, and they talk about heaven a lot, but the song simply said that it's just up there somewhere. You know, that it's just there, and we know it, we feel it, we understand according to the Scriptures, we live by faith to hold on to that, amen? And so I'm going to kind of dive in and look at these Scriptures. Look with me at Revelation 21, verse number 2 again. It says that John saw this holy city, and it was said that it's a new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven, all right? It's coming down from God out of heaven. And you go, okay, Brother Steve, well, how can heaven, New Jerusalem, be coming out of heaven? Because you remember the first verse in chapter 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former had passed away. The former things had all passed away. And last Sunday we talked about that all things would be made new, and Jesus is the one that makes all those things new, amen? And what he does by that is when his judgment will come to this earth, it will be judged with a fiery judgment, and it's going to be changed, and things are going to be altered, and things are going to be different. I don't understand how it's all going to happen. I do understand that the Bible says in the beginning in creation in Genesis that he called the land to come out of the waters. And in 1 Peter, he said the land is standing in the water and out of the water. And that we understand our world now as being whatever 70% or more of being with water, and then that percentage of land that's left, just like with even with Within our bodies, that's the same kind of ratio. But we also know that the Bible says when this new thing happens and the heaven and earth flee and pass away and the new heaven and earth comes in, it says there will be no more sea. We don't understand how it is, but there's even people that believe in this certain <clears throat> theology in the first days of Pangea, uh, continental drift kind of theory that it was one land at one time and because of the flood <clears throat> all things now are different land and we have the seas that separate us but when it says this new heaven and new earth will be no more sea what it's basically talking about is that evidently there will be no more seas that we understand and I know you think well how could we live you know I'm sorry for doing that but in a world that there's no sea. All of that kind of sustains all of the life. But in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to understand that he is going to be the sustainer of all life, that he has more power than the seas actually have. And so it's going to teach us that. But then also, <clears throat> what it's talking about, no more sea, there's going to be no more division among the people. We're going to be in that one nation, one nation, one kingdom that is talking about under God. I want to show you, first of all, the sight of heaven. If you're taking the notes, and you're welcome to do that. If you look on your Bible, uh, version Bible app, <clears throat> the notes are on there. You can search under like a 
events, and you can find them at North Highland. If you'd like to do them at home, you do them on your phone, and, and nobody will think you're texting in church, right? <clears throat> look, Revelation chapter 21, look at verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> the Bible says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. <clears throat> and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. <clears throat> And showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So as we look at this, we've got to, you know, kind of contrast a certain few things, all right? We've got to go back in Revelation to understand this. It said in that scripture that one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls, the seven vials that were full of God's wrath. You remember that that angel was pouring out the final judgment of God, Brother Brian, on the earth, and he was pouring out those seven last plagues that were going to be on the earth and all this stuff happening. But now this wonderful angel is now coming in and presenting the bride of God coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And this is what you have to understand. I know that most people want to come to church. And when we want to come to church, we want to go away feeling all fuzzy and warm inside. When we go to church, we expect to go to church and feel better about ourselves. But the only way we can feel better about ourselves is understanding more about who he is and how much he forgives us and loves us and the worth of our lives is so great that he would even give his life or his son's life instead of taking yours. That ought to make you go home feeling a little warm and fuzzy, right? But most people come to church and they hear about sin and they hear about this and they think, well, you're just whipping people and you're just beating people down and stuff. But just like this angel, this angel was one of the angels, Brother Brandon, that poured out the seven last judgments on the earth. But he also had the privilege, Brother Matt, of introducing the bride coming down from heaven to almighty Jesus Christ, right? It was coming down from heaven down to earth like a bride adorned for her husband. You can't have God and his wonderful grace without understanding the nastiness of sin. You can't have Calvary without us being murderers, all these other things, and being ungodly. You can't have heaven without teaching that there's a place of judgment also. And too many people today only want the sweetness of God. They only want the milk and the honey part of God. But if it were not for the milk and honey part, we would be going to the bitterness and to the judgment. And so we have to have both in order to be a good preacher of the gospel, in order to be good Christians, in order to be good Bible teachers and Bible scholars, you have to have the same amount of God's judgment as you do the same amount of God's grace. It's just that way. And you say, why does it need to be that way? Because it's not about being 51% sweet and nice and, and glorious to everybody and 49% bad and that way you get to go to heaven. It's about that we, on the scale of sin, we were a 10. On the scale of ungratefulness, ungodliness, the Bible says in the last days perilous times would come. They will be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. They would be heady, high-minded, truce breakers. It says they will be unthankful. Unthankful is listed with murderers and liars. Unthankful is listed with the ungodly. And I don't know about y'all, but I've looked in that scripture before and I thought, God, of all these things, loving themselves more than loving God, heady, being prideful, high-minded, all of these things, unthankful? And the way it hits you right in the gut because you go, Lord, there's been many days I've been unthankful. You know what usually makes us thankful? When we're hurting, when something's missing. You know, I really never walk through life going, God, I'm so glad you woke me up this morning and my back is not hurting. But I'm going to tell you something, when my back is hurting, I always go, oh, God, help me, 
right? That's the way that we are. We're the kind of people that we don't miss our water until the well has already run dry. And we need to be the kind of people that are always thankful. That's why David talked about it. That's why Peter talked about it and Paul. But not only contrast the angel as he poured out seven judgments and then now he's getting to introduce and present the bride, the wife of the lamb, but also earlier in the scriptures, the Bible says that John is taken away in the spirit. And as he's taken away in the spirit, it says that he was taken out to the wilderness and he said, behold, he saw a harlot out in the wilderness. Do y'all remember that? Chapters 18, 17 and 18, he saw that worldly Babylonian system out in the wilderness, but God presented it to John as what? That she was a harlot. She was one that said she had religion, said she had traditional things, but was without God. You say, how could that be, Brother Steve? The Bible says there are many that have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. In other words, inwardly they're empty, outwardly they show things, but inwardly they're empty. And in this scripture, the Bible says, says that now John is not taking to the wilderness to see a harlot. He is taken up into a great and high mountain. Look with me at verse number 9 again. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I like that. Come here. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And look at what it says in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Amen. He didn't carry him out into the wilderness where there was death and there was death and there was no moisture he carried him to a great and a high mountain and as he looked out he saw what the holy city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God the names of this city throughout Israel's life they've called it the Jerusalem the city of God they call it uh, the new Jerusalem they call it the city of peace the word itself Jerusalem or Jerusalem it actually means city of peace. It actually is translated in the Hebrew as being God's city of peace, Jehovah's city of peace, or the city of God. And it's a wonderful thing to think about how that they use those names. The Bible even calls it this, not an earthly Zion mountain, but a heavenly mountain. He says that in this place, you think about the Jerusalem that we have now. In Jerusalem that we have now, we have two mountains that are there. And those two mountains that are the biggest and the ones that are most spoken about are Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. Amen? And the Mount Zion is where this Bible talks about where God did great and wonderful things, but on Mount Moriah is where he put his own son on a cross and he died for our sins. But when the new Jerusalem comes down, the Bible describes it as being a new Mount Zion, a holy, heavenly Mount Zion in the book of Hebrews. The Bible says also, look at the position of this city. It's situated between the heavens and the earth. And I don't know how this is going to be. I don't know exactly all the things about it. But the Bible gives us an idea that in the millennial reign that this heavenly city is going to be above the earthly Jerusalem. That this heavenly city that is so wide and so deep and so tall that it actually is going to descend down and the saints of God will be in the city of God, in that new Jerusalem, but that millennial reign that it will hover some way up over the earth. And you say, I don't understand that, Brother Stephen. I don't either. But looking at that, it seems to teach that this is going to happen. But then at the end of the millennial reign, look at what it says. It says that it's coming down. Down, amen. It's going to come down and it's going to descend out of heaven. And the Bible says it's going to be brand new. The Bible says that after it descends, it's going to be this wonderful marriage type thing. And God is always... How many of you are married? Raise your hand. How many of you just shacking up together and living together? Raise your hand too. 
we got a different message for y'all today, right? None of y'all wanted to raise your hand, did you, huh? I, I tried, I tried, I almost caught you. But listen, the Bible always, since the beginning, God ordained, first of all, creation of mankind, that we would do what? We would worship our wonderful creator. That is the first thing he established and ordained in the Bible. The second thing that God did in the Bible, the second thing that he did looking at when he created mankind, he said that it's not good that we would be alone, and he established helpmeets to be together. He established and ordained the marriage. And then if you look at the scriptures, he ordained then, listen, worship together, united in ecclesia, a church that's called out, and we come together to worship on mountains, by rivers, by creeks, by streams, by the lake, that we come together as the body of Christ. And then fourth of all, he says we come out of that church experience into ministry. And the reason that a lot of people fail at things today is because they try to get those things out of order. You can't have your ministry doing what it needs to do for God, first of all, if your worship is not right with God. Second of all, if your marriage is not right with God, did you know men and women that the Bible even teaches us that if a husband and a wife are not together, that their prayers are hindered? Huh? Right? Some of y'all just went, that's why he's not answering me. Right? But also, you can't go and do the ministry of what the body of Christ is as if you don't come to the body of Christ. Amen? So we need those things in order, but that's another message for another day. But in that, God has always ordained marriage to be beautiful. When you are married, it, listen, I know, and I don't want to take away from anyone. I know some of y'all just got married. Some of y'all fixing to get married. Some of y'all been married so long. Okay? So, 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 so long. And you don't understand that when people see you, he and she, he and her, that's the way it's supposed to be. When, when people see you, they're supposed to be seeing an image, an illustration, and an example of what a relationship is with Jesus Christ and with God. When they see Matt and Amy, they are supposed to not just go, Matt and Amy doing their own thing. They're supposed to see that's what kind of marriage exemplifies and, and glorifies Jesus' relationship with me. He used it in Ephesians chapter 5 and talked about it all. And he said, listen, I'm speaking a mystery. I'm not talking about marriage alone. He said, but although you should treat your marriages this way. He always used it as that and even used the Old Testament. He called Israel, Jehovah God, God the Father, called Israel his wife. He said, I married you and you've went away from me. Read the book of Hosea. He said, I married you. I came to you and called you out of nothing. Read the book of Ezekiel. Read the book of Jeremiah where, where uh, in Ezekiel he found her by the road, abandoned, but yet he brought her in. And he said that she became beautiful in his sight and then he married himself unto her. And he did all these things. So the Jewish people have taught us a wonderful thing about marriage and it's this. The Jewish wedding was always, or the ceremony, was always in three different phases. The first one was always the engagement. The engagement entailed with him asking the father. Also this. This is really good. This is really good. And you guys that's got daughters, y'all need to put this into practice, okay? Not only does that young man come and ask you for her hand, which I don't even know if people do that much anymore. I think you ought to. Amen. Right? And I think if you're the daddy, you ought to make him. Yes. Exactly. He's getting your daughter. You raised her all the way up to be what she's supposed to be like. Listen, you guys ought to amen something like this. 
And if he wants to take her, he ought to ask you, right? I remember asking my father-in-law, and he said, yes, you know. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, yes, go ahead, you know, one less at the table. But he asked, I asked. But in a Jewish engagement, he also, this is good, y'all write this down. Some of you guys don't take notes, y'all write this one down, if anything. He also had to prove, Brother Mitch, his guarantee and his fact of having a job and provisions and money and stuff to be able to support them. Yeah, exactly. You don't want some dumb guy that's living in the basement all the time playing video games to take care of your daughter. Right? You want one of them that's got, you got a job? That's the first question you ought to ask them. The second question is, where do you plan on living? As Bill Cosby said, you ain't living here. Right? Listen, these people, the engagement, and it shows us the engagement is this, and this is good, and I'm trying not to get hung up on this, but it's hard. But the engagement in that Jewish wedding is just exactly what Christ has done for you and I. It's how Christ came and offered himself to you, and he asked for your hand. The second phase of the Jewish wedding is this, is the betrothal part. The betrothal part that it actually is so long, you don't know how long it would be. He could say it could be a year, but when they were engaged, he committed himself and left money. At the father's house, at the, at, at the one he was going to marry, he left money there with the dad. <laughs> yes, right? And some of you are going to think, I'm proud to be an American, right? And you're not in the Jewish wedding ceremonies. But listen, he left the money there and he committed to her and said, I'll be back in one year or two years or ever how long. He said, as long as it takes me to go and to prepare, prepare the place... Then I will come back. Well, will it be exactly at that day? He said, I don't know, but I will come. The Bible says, no man knows the hour nor the day wherein the Son of Man cometh. The Bible even says that Jesus himself doesn't know it. But he did say this, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And what he was saying is, is I'm coming back. Well, when are you coming back, Lord? It's not for you to know when I'm coming back. It is for you to be ready when I'm coming back. So it shows how the groom comes back for the bride, which is Jesus when he comes and raptures us out of here we'll be called away amen but then the last portion of that is the actual ceremony itself they have a wonderful ceremony and listen in the beginning the engagement is how Christ came to offer us salvation in the betrothal it's how the groom comes for the bride but in the ceremony it is how the bride now is walking toward the groom and the Bible says that John saw this city this heavenly Mount Zion this new Jerusalem this eternal state of the believers or heaven he said he saw it coming out of heaven out of the clouds out of the sky as a wife or a bride that was adorned for her husband it's finally presentation day to where the bride is going to be presented to jesus christ listen let's talk about the second thing the splendor of heaven the bible says in revelation 21 and verse number 11 having the glory of god and her light was the light unto a stone most precious even like a jasper stone clear as crystal and you look at this, and John is giving the description in an earthly sense. He's taking everything he's ever known on earth, and he's trying to take this heavenly city, and he's trying to present it in words and in illustrations that we can understand it. And that's basically like taking something of the unknown and trying to explain it to someone. And that's a very difficult task to do. That's so difficult to do. But John is trying his best to put it in terminology that we would understand. And he says, when I saw this city, he said, the first thing that I noticed is that the city had the glory of God on it. 
He said it had, and if you look up that word glory of God, you'll understand in the Old Testament, it was a word that was called Shekinah glory of God. It was a glory of God that when it filled the place that the people could not even stand up to minister. They could not even do anything but be in the presence of God and recognize that there's, there's no way this is just some bright light. This is the glory of God that filled the whole city. He said, and the way that it looked unto me, he said it was like a stone that was most precious. He said it was like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And we know that jasper here on this earth, that jasper could be a blue stone, a purple stone, a green stone, or even a green stone that's mixed with kind of a copperish look also. But when he said this, he's actually describing that word clear as crystal. He's saying it's looked like a diamond. He said this city coming out of heaven looked like a diamond. And if you ladies have diamonds, you know, have diamond rings and diamond earrings and diamond bracelets, you know that when the light reflects on that, that it even has that multifaceted colors, that, that you could see that bluish, that reddish, that, that greenish, that as it, as it sparkles, you can see almost that, that wonderful colors of the rainbow itself, and it shimmers and it shines. John said that that was what the glory of God was. And you know what? This is my question to you. What actually makes heaven heaven? You stop and think about it. Everybody goes, well, well, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to take my shoes off and put them in that river of life. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to take my shoes off and sit by the crystal sea. When I get to heaven, I'm going to sit around the throne of God and just thank him and thank him and thank him. When I get to heaven, I'm going to do this. I'm going to look up my pawpaw and I'm going to look up my grandma and all that. But really and truly, what makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven actually heaven is what it says there in the scriptures, the glory of God fills the place. Listen, Ezekiel gives us an understanding. In Ezekiel, the Bible talks about this millennial reign. It talks about the time when God is, is thunderously praised and glorified and His Son is glorified. But at the end of the book, the last chapter and the very last verse, the Bible says this in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. It was round about 18,000 measures and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The name of the city shall be the Lord is there. Do you know what that phrase, the Lord is there? Do you know what it is? In the Hebrew, it is Yehovah Shema. It is Jehovah Shema. We know that Jehovah Rapha, that he is our great provider. We know that he is our great banner. The Lord is our banner. But Ezekiel says when it comes to heaven, he said what makes heaven heaven is that the Lord is there. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Do you know what? The White House is just simply the White House unless the president is there. I mean, how many of you know you could walk through the White House and boy, what a wonderful feeling to know that people have been there. But it's a whole lot different if you know the president is there, right? Because why? It kind of establishes that's what this place was built for, to house the, the president and his wife and to do these things. And the Bible says that Ezekiel says that the Lord is going to be there that's what makes heaven heaven. The splendor of heaven is not how we're going to get to reunite with one another. And the splendor of heaven is not going to get to run down streets of gold and, and, and tap the gates of pearl and all that stuff. The Bible says that what's going to make heaven heaven is Jehovah Shammah. That the Lord is there. Amen. Let's talk about the building itself, the structure of heaven. Now this is a part where we kind of get into earthly mindset. We get into this earthly kind of pattern. So don't jump up and think, okay, this all is, you know, this is all just it. But you got to understand he lays out certain dimensions. The Bible says, first of all, look at the city itself. 
The city itself, Revelation chapter 21, look again at verse number 11. The Bible says the city, it has the glory of God, and her light was like the light of a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. John describes this city of peace where God dwells as being most precious. He uses the word right there that it's like a stone that's most precious. And the word precious itself, we know it means something that affects the heart. It means something that is dear to the heart. It means something that is of value, something that is of great value. And so when we see the city of God that comes down, the first words that we would describe, that that is something near to my heart. When you talk about heaven, it seems precious. When you talk about heaven today, and I think of all of my friends, all of my my grandparents, all of my grandparents are there now. All of them were professing believers in Jesus Christ, so I know because of their profession of faith that they're there. But not only are they there, but I have friends there. That I have close friends that are a little older than me that are there. I have some friends that are younger than me that are there. And I know that in, in all of our thoughts, we would so want them to be here. There's so many days where I'll go, man, I, if I could talk to that one. And y'all all experience this stuff all the time. We experience the same thing. And we know, we believe that they would probably never trade that out. They, and as much as they love us, they would never trade a conversation with us for the conversations that they could be having now with, with God himself, Jehovah Shammah, the, uh, the Lord Jesus himself. But you know what makes heaven so much sweeter? Every single day, more and more of my friends are stepping into that eternal state. They're going into that place. And it makes me want this. It doesn't make me angry about it. And I had to deal with that a long time ago. But it makes me this. It makes me want to go there even more. My granddad heard me preach like once or twice. There's been many days when they ordained me to be the pastor here at the church. The very thing that I wanted, Matt, was I wanted my granddaddy here. My, My pawpaw. He sat in the back of the boat when we go crappie fishing all the time. And we think we're never going to catch anything because he's always kicking the sides of the pontoon boat accidentally. And I was thinking, there's not a fish in 100 miles of here. But how many times I've wanted to hear him say, hey, buddy, hand me a minute. And that doesn't affect you, but just those words. When even I go fishing with friends now and they ask that statement, boom, automatically it takes me to my granddad. The old pictures in the house where you used to go in years ago over the dinner table and it's got this little old lady and she's got her Bible open and, and there's a loaf of bread on there and she's saying the blessing, you know, and you got the old man that's on the other side and he's doing that and I think it's actually called, the, the picture is called the blessing. I can't go by the thrift store and go by these uh, flea markets and stuff without seeing that picture and it takes me to my mamaw's house in Thorsby, Alabama. Where I would have to go. It seemed like punishment in those days. Because I'd have to go down there some days in the summer. And it was like, there's nothing to do down here. Nothing to do at all. I mean, literally, you're hearing this in the living room. You're sitting there. And you hear the clock going. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Get me out of this place. And where we would would pick poke salad on the side of the road. And she would make squash and onions and taters and stuff. And I was like, there's no McDonald's here. There's no Burger King here. There's nothing. There was just the only great thing about it is we could drive to Clanton and get some roasted chicken. That was the best thing of all. We only had that when we had funerals. That was the good stuff, right? And you're going, oh, my goodness. But how many times now I see that picture and it takes me right back to, listen, they didn't have a lot. Little old bitty table, round table. They didn't have all. It was just for two. Didn't have much of anything. 
But I can remember her just sitting there, and my mama would take her legs and would fold them underneath her on the couch, and she'd get all comfortable. And my papa would tell jokes, and she'd just look at him and say, you a blue-eyed devil, you, you know, all this stuff. And just thinking about it, but that's what makes it. John said it was precious. And what he said was it was so valuable, the city itself. Look what the Bible says. The Bible says the next thing, look at verse 12, talking about the wall. It says, let's look at this, the wall. It says, verse 12, 21, verse 12. And it had a wall great and high and had 12 gates. And, and, and at the gates, 12 angels and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The Bible says that John said this wall was, was great and high. It was built up. But then he also uh, kind of added more in verse number 18. And, and, and it's weird because John is going in between these descriptions. And he says in verse 18, he says, and the building of the wall, it says it was of jasper. And the city was like pure gold. like It was like clear glass under crystal. He said it was so beautiful that it was almost, when it says the word clear glass, Brother Ronnie, what he's saying is it's like transparent. It's almost like you could see through the city. It was so, so vivid and stuff. And if you think about it, the Bible says that this wall was made up with this clear, this jasper stone that it could have been, like I said, purple, blue, or, or green, or even like brass that was in it and stuff. But this wall around the city that was almost as a diamond. And it was almost so clear that it was so beautiful. And even the city was as clear as, as crystal and like the uh, pure gold and stuff. And so you think about this wall, you got to think about the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple days. No one could see in. Because they had white linen curtains that were all around. When you walked up from your tent or woke up from your tent that morning and you went out to see the tabernacle, you couldn't see the sacrifices that were going on. All you could see is the smoke that would be ascending up. You couldn't see the priests in there working and doing all that. All you could do was just hear a little bit about what was going on. You didn't even get to see inside the Holy of Holies and stuff because it was also guarded with walls of wood that were overlaid with gold and skins that were over the top. But you couldn't see him. But God says, and John says, that this new city of God, new Jerusalem now that I see, he said, when you're looking at the walls, it is like clear as crystal. It's like diamonds. It's almost transparent. Then the Bible says he talks about these gates. Look at these gates. The Bible says in verse 12 and 13, and then it goes on later in another verse. Look at 12. It says, and it had a great and high wall, or great, uh, excuse me, it had a wall great and high, and it had 12 gates. And at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east were three gates, and on the north were three gates. On the south were three gates, and on the uh, uh, west were three gates. Look at verse 21. He says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. John, now listen, I know that... I know that we're trying to make heaven what we want it to be, but that is not what John is doing. That's not what he's attempting to do. Brother Jimmy, what John is attempting to do is to take heavenly sight and what he sees and turn it into an earthly description. And that is very difficult. That would be like you and I actually being able to vividly explain how we're saved. That's very difficult other than the cross of Calvary and what he did and resurrection out of the grave. But you can't physically take people there to show them that it happened. You're actually trying to show them something spiritually that took 
took place in you and put it into earthly words, right? That's why, let me say something real quick. We'll take a time out. That's why you can't mess up your testimony and you can't mess up witnessing to people about Jesus because what God has done for you is going to come out of you and you don't have to say it like I do. You need to say it like God gave it to you, amen? But looking at the gates of this, the Bible says that there were 12 gates, that there were literally three gates on each side of this heavenly Jerusalem. And as those three gates, we kind of, it kind of takes our minds backwards into the Scriptures, into the book of Exodus, and it kind of makes us look at the tabernacle. And how God told the Israelites, the 12 tribes, that three would be on the west, three would be on the north, three on the south, and three on the east. And as they all camped together, and you can look the numbers up. I won't do that today for you. But you could look the numbers up of the people and how many people were in their tribes in those days as they were in the wilderness. And you would understand that the way that even God laid out the tabernacle with all the companies of the people, that it actually would have been an image of the cross out in the wilderness because so many 60,000 people were on the east, so many 60,000 people were on the west, so many 50,000, 40,000 people were to the north, and so many 80 to 100,000 people were to the south. And you look at it, it made a beautiful cross that would have been out in the wilderness. And God didn't want them to separate. I believe he laid out that foundation so that it would be vividly seen later on in life what was going to happen. And he says that these gates, all these gates that are there, it says they're going to have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel that are on them. We don't understand, but if you look at the book of Ezekiel, you would understand that this tribe and this tribe and this tribe were at the east gate. This one, this one, and this one were at the west, and then the south and the north as we go through that. But God laid it out that way. And I think about this, and I need to share this with you. If it were not for that Jewish heritage, God coming to the Jews, calling them out to be his people, and him giving them this word that we have today, and them those people, they were the ones that their lineage was the one that brought Jesus into this earth. It was not the lineage of an American. It was the lineage of a Jewish-born baby boy. And if it were not for them, none of us, none of us, because of what God brought through the 12 tribes of Israel, His only begotten Son, we would not have access into heaven at all. And isn't it beautiful that the Bible lays it out very clearly that on those gates it's the 12 tribes of Israel. And thank God that they're never shut. The gates are always open, the Bible says. But it also says this, and I want you to look at it. It says that each gate, now this is going to be difficult for us to imagine, but it says in verse number 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. It says in every several gate was of one pearl. Isn't it neat that John somehow specifically saw this? John somehow looked at this, and he saw that, well, the, man, that, that's the oddest thing I've ever seen. He said, that gate, that one is made out of one pearl. That gate is made out of one pearl. And, and a lot of people think it this way, is that they're golden gates and that there's one big pearl over the top. But that's not the illustration that John wrote down for us. And I want you to understand that in the beginning of this book, in John chapter 1, he was instructed to write what he saw and what he heard. Now John is writing what he saw. So we don't need to look into what John said he saw and try to mess it up and try to bring it down and dumb it down in order for things to fit together. We just need to understand that he said that each of the gate, every several gate, was of one pearl. And everything that he's talked about, every single uh, aspect of heaven has dealt with jasper and precious stones and diamonds clear as crystal. 
He's talked about these things, and he's used precious metals, stones, and all of that. And now we come to this place where he says it's of one pearl. And if you understand this, you would know that in that pearl, that it is the one single thing that living organisms have to be agitated and to be cut and to be opened up and a grain of sand go into that organ of that living organism in that, in that oyster and that then the process starts happening where that little thing begins to say, you're foreign to me and begins to build around it and build around it and build around it. So if you think about it, think of it like this, that the access that we're talking about, that gate of pearl, was because of a living organism, a living thing that was wounded and opened and that that is one of the man-made or living worldly things that were done. And if you stop and think about it for a moment, I'm not trying to look too deep, but if you stop and think about it, if John was specific enough to say each one of them was one pearl, we ought to go, hey, wait a minute, Lord, help help me see that. Time out. We're not digging into this, but we're looking at it like this, that if it were not for Jesus placed on Calvary's hill, and they opened him up and wounded him. Listen, it's because of what the Bible says. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. And that pearl of great price is none other than Jesus Christ in my book. It is Jesus one that was wounded. It was Jesus the one that was affected. It was Jesus that ascended into the grave and came out. What wonderful and beautiful in a glorified body. But then it says this, and this is the good preaching this morning. It says they had foundations. The Bible says in verse 14 of 21, it says, And the wall of the city had how many? Twelve foundations. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Stop for a moment and look. It said that the city had how many gates? Twelve. The city now says, the Bible says, John says, the city has how many foundations now? 12. If you look back at Revelation, and as we talked about in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, we were talking about the throne room of God. Y'all remember that? In the throne room of God, there were how many elders that were present in the throne room of God? 24, which is a representation of Old Testament patriarchs, Old Testament Israel, and New Testament apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, an, is, a, it is a beautiful representation that all believers go to be with God. Amen? That when we die, we will be in the very presence of God. But now here in heaven, we are seeing, because of that access that has been opened up, those 12 tribes of Israel that helped to bring in, listen, that tried to stay true to the Word of God, and Jesus Christ came to this earth. Now we see that the foundations of heaven are not just one foundation, but it is of 12, and it has the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, of the Lamb of God. Look at what it further says in chapter 21. Look at verse 19 and 20. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony. says the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoparis, the, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. It says that all of these beautiful, beautiful stones are there of those twelve apostles in that foundation. It doesn't say... That one of them looked like this, one of them looked like this, one of them looked like this, and one of them looked like this. It wasn't like that, that, the, that the jasper was stacked on the amethyst and all that, and it was stacked down through there like that. And thank God it ain't like some kind of mood ring either, right? But what it says, it said that it was filled up. Look back at verse number um, 19. It says, the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. 
It says that the foundations, Brother Mitch, seemed to glimmer with all kinds of stones. It seemed to shine as bright and bright in all different colors. <clears throat> now, here's my thought on this. I wonder, God, now, I, I didn't build heaven, okay? Um, but I wonder sometimes, and I go, God, why didn't you put that on the gates? Because in, in Scripture and in theology, it would have fit better on the gates. And you say, why, Brother Steve? Because the Israelites and these stones that we read right here are the stones that was on the breastplate of the ephod of the high priest. And you would think, okay, you would have hung all them stones on, on, the, on that gate and stuff and not pearl. But God is showing us the reason that the Israelites in that pearl was because they brought Jesus in and they wounded him. And he is the beautiful pearl of great price. And I go, well, why didn't you put it on those gates, Lord? Because the Bible says now those who were no people are a people. Those who were not priests are now called priests and kings through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the New Testament church, which is underneath the preaching of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a great foundation of what? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what the foundation is? Without the foundation, you have no gates. But why did he describe the gates first? Because in our scriptures, the Bible even teaches that the gates were first, Brother Mitch, because of the children of Israel. But thank God that it wasn't founded only upon the children of Israel. You know what the foundation of heaven is? Is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. The foundation of heaven is this. I love you. I want to be with you. I always, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But listen, the gates were talked about before the foundation. But the foundation is there even in the New Testament because... It wasn't just to bring the Israelites to heaven. It was to bring everybody to heaven. And now in the New Testament, we preach to Jew, to Greek, to Gentile, to whoever. It doesn't matter, nation or what. We preach to them, and that is why it shines like none other. Amen? That's why it is a glorious beauty. Because why? All of the nations of God run in to heaven. Someday, our white skins will run together with brown skin. And we'll be united, and we won't be fired among one another anymore. Someday the thing that Jesus says will all be together will not be separated by Russia or China or America, but there will be one nation that's literally under God. Amen. That's in the freedom and the grace of God. And it shines. You say, what do you think that it's talking about? I think that when you look at this city, the foundations of heaven are shining like the manifold grace of God. There is nothing that's greater than grace. 1 Peter chapter 4 says in verse 10, As every man has received the gift, says, Even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of what? The manifold grace of God. All you men should understand this scripture maybe a little more than the women. Because you understand intakes and manifolds that are in vehicles. You understand that in that manifold that it actually moves and it pushes air and does other things and does all of this going out to the different places. That's what God said the grace of God is like. He said it is the manifold grace of God that it reaches to the highest mountain. That it reaches to the lowest valley. It's talking about how the grace of God, when Jesus shed his blood at Calvary, that blood that was spilt on that Israel dirt that day, listen, covered the sins of all of the world, not just the sins of people in Israel. It is grace. What grace? There's a song that says, Grace, grace, God's grace. Amen. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Listen, it is grace. That Paul said is sufficient. Look at what he said in Corinthians. He says, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul said, therefore, I would rather glory in my 
infirmities. I would rather glory in my ailments. I would rather glory that I can't walk straight or that my back hurts or that I've got something wrong with my I would rather glory in my infirmities so that the power of Christ would rest on me. He said, I would rather glory that I am frail and that I am weak and that I'm fallible instead of being prideful because of all the things that I think I have going for me. He said, because I would rather the power of Christ rest on me than my own self-righteousness rest on me. He said, the manifold grace of God is grace that's sufficient. The second thing is it's it's the kind of grace that saves. The Bible says in Acts chapter 15, he says in verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they, amen. You're saved by grace. Ephesians talked about that. It's grace that sustains, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, this is good right here by the grace of God I am what I am all right now wait a minute now don't you look at your wife and don't look at your husband and go well God made me this way because God is actually trying his best since the day that you were saved to get you to stop being that way and get you to be more like him amen don't look at people and go well I was just born this way that's the way I am that's not what Paul and don't you use this scripture to say so Paul says this but by the grace of God I am what I am and what he's saying is, is when people would come up to him and say Paul man I love you what a wonderful message what God is doing in you what a great ministry Paul says this but by his grace I am what I am Paul I can't believe that God would call you an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ Paul says by the grace of God I am what I am by the grace of God I'm called to do what I'm called to do it's not because of your strength it's not because you think you speak well it's not because you actually think you can hit notes and all that stuff it's by the grace of God that we are what we are and he says this right here he says and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain he said but I labored more abundantly than they all he says but listen to me now listen Paul says and and I work that grace out. He said, the grace that God gave me, I work more than any of them. I, I push toward the mark all the time. But then Paul turns around again, Brother Mitch, and he says this, but it's not me that's actually working, but yet it's the grace of God that was with me. It's God's grace that's doing that. First Peter chapter 5 says this, and I like this one the most. You can't write this one down because it's going to be too fast. But it's the kind of grace that straightens us up, secures us, strengthens us, and settles us. That's all S's, right? So you can just tell people it's the kind of grace that's... 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, But the God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, look at this, after you have suffered a while, he'll make you perfect. That means he'll straighten you up. God has the power to straighten you up. And the best thing for you to do is to surrender to him and let him straighten you up. He says he'll make you perfect. He says he will establish you. God will strengthen you. He will establish you. The second thing he says, God will strengthen you. And the last one is that God has that great, wonderful ability to settle you. To get you to go, hey, settle. Settle down. Be secure. Then the Bible gives this description. This is the last one I think it is. It may be, but almost two more. The size of heaven. And I'm going to go quick through this. But the Bible says that he began to measure out the city. If you look in verse number 16, it says, And the city lies four square. And the length of it is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, with a rod. He said 12,000 furlongs or 12,000 stadia. It says, And the length and the breadth of the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. And you look at the city and the dimensions right here, you'll understand that if we break it down from the furlongs and we do the cubics and all that stuff, that it's literally 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles tall or deep. 
It, God gives this description that it's cubed, that it's 1,500 miles squared. And you look at that and you go, well, that's not very big, is it, Brother Steve? If we were to set this city in the United States today, it would stretch from Canada down to Florida and would go from Maine all the way to Denver, Colorado. If you were to set this city down in a 1,500-mile squared cube, it would come down over all of that. And you think about how many people and thousands upon thousands or billions upon millions upon millions of people that could live in the city that would be like that. It's sufficient enough. And I know that maybe you would want it to be bigger, but the Bible even tells us that there's not very many that are choosing to go there. The Bible says that the place that he's going to prepare is going to be sufficient enough for all of those who believe to be there in his presence. It's going to be this beautiful, big place. And you say, when John saw it coming out of heaven, and he gave the descriptions of it all, I mean, I wonder what it would be like. And I want to take you back to the tabernacle. The Bible says the tabernacle was like, it was like 45 deep by 15 long, wide. 45 foot long on one side by 15. Just, just the inside of the tabernacle, not the gate, the outside, but just the tabernacle itself, and you're looking at it all. And it says that the room that had the table of showbread and the lampstand and the golden altar there of incense, it said it was 30 foot by 15 by 30 by 15. But when you went into the Holy of Holies, the Bible gives the description of how big that it was, and it's actually this. It's 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cubed measurement of 15 feet and 15 feet tall. And now the Bible says that this heavenly city, New Jerusalem, is coming down and that it is 1,500 miles deep by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles tall, that it is 1,500 miles cubed. And you say, but Brother Steve, that, that just has to really be a coincidence. You know, I, I just don't really think that those things would go together. Well, you would be wrong, and it's all right for you to be wrong. Because if you go back to the book of Exodus, you would understand that when God told Moses and all of them and gave them instructions of how to build the tabernacle, he said, fashion it after the pattern in heaven. He said, you fashion this after the pattern that would be in heaven. And listen, it's talking about heaven finally. The Old Testament, God said, you build me a place and I'm going to come down to be with you. But in this New Testament, in the book of Revelation, God says, no, heaven is going to come down to earth. Listen, why? Because it says the tabernacle of God is with men. It says that he is coming and all of this stuff where the bride is coming like a, uh, excuse me, heaven's coming like a bride adorned for her husband. Here's the last thing and we'll go. We'll go. The Bible says the satisfaction of heaven. I, I guess to me, the simple satisfaction of heaven would be what for most people just to get there. Most Christians today are living by the, what we call the skin of your teeth. I never really understood that illustration very much. I've always found it to be kind of gross if you think about it. People going, you're just making it by the skin of your teeth. And I'm like, man, you don't need skin on your Brush those things. You won't have skin on them, right? <clears throat> but by the skin of your teeth, which must be like very, 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 very small. And most Christians today are living by that theology. That if I just make it there, then I'll be satisfied. That's not what God wants you to do. That's not how God intended you to live. God has actually intended you to live as though looking for that place. And when you finally get there, what's called the coronation day, that everything that you've ever known will now become sight. Everything that you've ever heard will now become real. It, you've been in church services where you hear these, listen to me young people, you hear these older people talking about heaven. And they're laying out this description and you've watched them cry and weep or even clap their hands or even yell and shout because they say, someday I'm going, you know. 
You've been to funerals where people are, are there and, and they grieve because grief hits all of us. No matter if you're a believer or non-believer, grief hits. But yet there's this grace that's there at the side of, of one that they've known as a Christian. And the reason it is is because the satisfaction of heaven is the actual fact that everything we've ever thought, Brother Ronald, now becomes real. Everything becomes real. And I hate to use a goofy worldly illustration, but a lot of you, you know, we're the, we're the society today. We have substitutes for everything. You got high blood pressure, we got salt substitutes. You got diabetes, you know, then we've got sugar substitutes. And if, if, uh, if, if you, you know, we take out this and we can give you that. And, I mean, we, we can even blend up plants today and offer it to you as a sausage biscuit, but it ain't. It ain't. I'm telling you, it ain't. Sausage is not plants. It is pig. Okay? We do all this substitute stuff, doing all that. But heaven, these symbols that God has given us in the scriptures of all this stuff, from Genesis to Revelation, John's trying to take all the things he's ever known, Sister Vicki, and he's trying to put it into real truth. And I'm, I'm so glad that God chose John to write this stuff down because Steve would have had it all messed up because I'd have been telling you in some kind of warrior terminology and no one else on the earth would have gotten it. But I want you to read these words with me as we close today. Look at Revelation 21. Look at verse 22 through 27. He says, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter anything, or any, excuse me, enter anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me share this with you. What's not in heaven? What's not there? In those scriptures, what's not there? First of all, there's no temple there. There's going to be need for. There's not going to be any need for a temple. And we got to understand that it's not talking about earth because the Bible says in the millennial reign that there would be a temple there, and that the water would be coming out from underneath the altar of God there in the temple. But in this New Jerusalem, it says there's going to be need, be need of no temple. Why? Because the Bible says that God is there. God's not going to need a place to come and to be with us in heaven. We're going to be with God. And the Bible says there's no need of a temple to worship Him in those days. It's going to be that He, the Almighty Lamb of God, are the temple of it. The Bible, second of all, says there's not going to be any need for the sun or the moon. There's not going to be any need for time, separation of day and night. There's not going to be any need for the sun. I like this scripture. It says the sun will not be there. It says, but there will be no heat. Don't you like that? Amen. I like places where there's no heat. It says there'll be no heat. It will not do that. Why? Because the Lamb of God will light that city. He will be the illumination of this place. And what he's saying is there's not going to be any need of artificial created things. He said the very one that spoke those things into existence are going to be the light of that city. What else is not going to be there? There's not going to be any schisms. There's not going to be any schism. There's no symbols, but there's no schism. See, the temple and all that are just symbols. But when we get the real thing, we don't need the symbols anymore. I don't, I don't open my wallet and kiss a picture of Patty if she's there beside me. 
I'll kiss Patty, not the symbol of it. But the other thing is, it says there's not going to be any schism. You know what schism is? Division. He says that the kings of the earth walk in it and they bring the glory and honor into it. That doesn't mean that the Americans or the Afghanistans, all these people that make it to heaven, that they're bringing their earthly kingdom into it. What it's talking about is the people that go in there know that there's one kingdom and they bring it. And when he says that the nations walk into it and they come into that place, what it means, Brother Matt, is that all nations, all creation will be equal. According to God, all things will be the same in heaven. Amen. There's not going to be any division. We're not going to have to worry about, will this one rival up against us? Will this one rise up to try to conquer us? No, there's going to be no schism. There's going to be no, listen to this, there's going to be no, no secrets in heaven. But it says in verse number 25 that the gates of the city will be opened always. Don't have to have the locks on. How many of you are in here that are older and you remember the day where you didn't lock your doors and all that stuff? Any of y'all remember some of that? Yeah, you remember some of that? Some of y'all are like, I've always locked my door. They steal everything I got, you know? I mean, even my truck, there's a lot of times I, the key's in it and all that good stuff. But listen, everybody today is afraid. You, you not only have a lock on your door, you got a deadbolt on your door, and you got a little flap that covers the door, and everybody is all that. The Bible says that heaven's gates will be opened at all times. Why? Because the only ones that will be there will be the believers, which leads us to the last thing. What's not there? Look at verse 26. Sinners are not there. Sinners are not there. The Bible says that anything, it may be verse 27, anything that defileth. Sinners won't be there. But what is there? Look at that same verse. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What is there? Listen to me. Jehovah Shema. What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus will be there. If there's any other reason that you're thinking about heaven, now listen to me, don't take this statement to be wrong, but there's nothing in heaven that could be greater than Jesus, the Lord God himself, being there. And it's because Jesus being there that also makes you long for all of those who have loved Jesus that you know without a shadow of a doubt that they're there also. But what makes heaven heaven? It's going to be Jesus. Jehovah Shammah. The last thing is this. What's there? God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What else is there? It says there's going to be peace there like no other. Because it's called the city, Jerusalem. Shalom, Jerusalem. It is the city of peace. There will be peace like no other there. What else is there? Is my last question. Will you be there? Going to heaven. Everybody wants to go. Ask anybody in the United States. If they're good enough to go, they'll tell you yes. If they want to go, they say yes. If they say, how many people do you think is going to get to go to heaven? I think a lot of people, all people probably get to go to heaven. Even among the church today, there is a rapid decreasing of believing among Christian people that there's a literal hell and that God actually judges people and does that. But the Bible plainly says so. And so I can't take it for granted this morning that you know that you're going to heaven. So I have to ask you, will you be there? It's not about just wanting the good stuff of God. Oh, God, give me the good honey part and the sweet part and all. No, no, no. If you say you're going to heaven, listen to me. You have to live. You have to show fruit. You have to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time for you to stop just being an ordinary, what's called an apathetic Christian. Not, I didn't say pathetic, but an apathetic Christian. 
An apathetic Christian is the Christian that does what they want, numbingly just walks through life, eking their way from hour to hour at a job, coming home, watching favorite shows, doing nothing else, and never showing fruit. That's apathy, laziness. Do you know you're going to heaven? Don't you want me to go with you? If you know you're going to heaven, don't you want your brother to go with you? Your sister to go with you? Man, I don't know about y'all. Don't you want your wife to go with you? Your husband to go with you? Your kids? Your parents? Yeah. Well, you need to live like that and live like a citizen of heaven. Because someday, what we've thought about is going to become sight. Amen. Let me pray for you. If you don't know Jesus, and what I mean by this is that not, <clears throat> listen to me now, <clears throat> I'm not saying no of Jesus. I'm not trying to ask you a question about, do you know about Jesus? Because some people would answer, yes, I, I know about him. He, he died on the cross and he did all these things. That's not the question I want to ask you right now. You're, you're being mindful in your prayer time. This is what I want to ask you. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Because that's what it says. It says, if you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus. And what that means is, is that you have confessed that Jesus is Lord. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that Jesus told those Pharisees. He says, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? You know why they were addressed with that question? Because they were saying that they were saved. They were saying they were Christians. But Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and you don't even live like it? So what I'm asking you today is Jesus Christ, your Lord. 